In the weeks coming up to Easter, we've been going through each gospel on its own. We did Matthew the first week, looked at how he's inviting us to mountain climb with Jesus. The second week, Mark, we were invited to brave the wilderness with Jesus. This week, Luke, we're going to be storytelling with Jesus. So I'll obviously let you know what that means. Go to Luke chapter 9, please. That's where we will kick off. While you find Luke 9, I thought I should tell you guys a couple stories first, sort of set the mood. I don't always sit in a sofa in the middle of the stage, but tonight I am. Once upon a time, a man sinned, and his sin brought a curse upon himself and his entire world. But then, a savior arrived into his world, but he didn't quite like, love, or accept the savior. After a while, he eventually did. And he and his world was transformed, and they lived happily ever after. What story is that? Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? That was Beauty and the Beast. Once upon a time, there was a peaceful world, and then angry, hostile people invaded it and brought war to it. The ruler's child voluntarily served as a sacrifice, and both sides made peace, and the world was restored to harmony and peace. That also sounds like the gospel. This was Pocahontas. Once upon a time, there was a world cursed and a sinner within it who was doomed to death. Then a savior arrived and offers himself as a sacrifice for the doomed sinner. And then the world that was cursed is restored and the sinner is set free. That also sounds like the gospel. Oh, and they lived happily ever after. That was the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. One more story. Once upon a time, there was an evil power threatening to destroy the entire world and enslave everyone within it. But someone who was considered insignificant and overlooked was tasked with carrying the burden of this evil. And he suffered under it. And when he was able to destroy this evil, the world was, uh, the evil was destroyed and the world was restored and renewed. And they lived happily ever after. The gospel? That's the Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien. I tell you those stories to make a point that sometimes when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, we are really good at making it sound like assembly instructions for a bookshelf. Step one, wood goes here, wood goes there. Step two, grab a hammer. Step three, get a friend just in case it goes wrong. And sometimes it can be so just 
this step, that step, that step, that we've lost the idea that the gospel is from the beginning, always we've been told it's called good news, not good steps to salvation, not good advice for a better life, but good news. Something happened, there's a story, there's a backstory, there's something in the present and the future that we need to be caught up into. And our word gospel comes from two, it's a word that's kind of been mushed by two old English words, God's spell. And spell was an old word for story. So gospel, our English word, comes from the concept of this is God's story. How are we doing with seeing that the God of the universe said once upon a time and then said they'll live happily ever after? And how are we in communicating the gospel in that way? I fear that we have in modern times, become obsessed with fact. But we've got to have all of the facts right. Now, there are facts in the Bible. There are facts in the gospel. That's, that's fine and dandy. But we have so emphasized fact that we have forgotten that truth can be beautiful. There is a difference between fact and truth. Once upon a time, blah, 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 they lived happily ever after, may not be factual, but it may be true. Fiction, movies, things that aren't exactly based upon a true story, that's not factual. You can't say in history this movie actually happened. But sometimes it's conveying something that's true. may not be the truth you hold to, but it's conveying something. And sometimes when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God, we want to make it all about facts. He's really real, and here are the facts for it. You need the gospel, and here's the facts for it. I needed to defend for to, from the top of my head to the end of my toes that this is factual in Scripture. Yes, those are important, but never at the expense of emphasizing the truth. And I think you agree with me that if I was to ask you what's more important, fact or truth— you would say, well, of course, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said that the truth will set you free. We must not reduce truth into mere information. Truth can be beautiful, and it can be compelling, and it can invite us in. So, let's look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now, Luke's gospel, up to this verse, 951, has been fairly similar to the other gospels. A lot of the same things happened. He's just telling it in his way, and he has a longer birth narrative. But a lot of the same things happen. In 951, we start an episode which will take us all the way to the end of chapter 19. In other words, we have a 10-chapter segment here. What's the segment? Well, look at 951. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 951 is the moment when Jesus says, all right, it's showtime. I am going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die and I'm going to 
be resurrected, and I'm going to ascend to my Father in heaven. This is it. This is now. I'm turning my face to Jerusalem. The rest of this gospel is about him getting to Jerusalem and accomplishing salvation there in Jerusalem. Now, 10 chapters. He gets to Jerusalem in chapter 19. So Luke basically does what Mark does, follows Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. But Mark does it in three chapters. Luke does it in 10. So Luke really slows it down here. One other important thing we need to realize is that there is a geographical importance to this journey. So Jesus is up north in Israel. Think northern California. Green. Not liberal, necessarily, but green. And lots of water and fruit and produce is up in Galilee. Um, but as you move south in, in Israel toward Jerusalem, it's like moving south in California toward Orange County, toward the Inland Empire. It gets a lot drier. It's not as green. It's a lot of concrete, a lot of civilization. That's sort of what it's like in Israel. Jesus spends most of his time in the north in Galilee, where he's teaching and gaining followers. Then when it's time, he makes his journey down toward Jerusalem, down south. And it's during this journey that we will see in those 10 chapters, from 9 to 19. That's the journey. But, 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 between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south, there is this middle section known as Samaria. Now, Samaria, there was nothing wrong with the land itself, per se, but the people, the always the people in life, isn't it? It's the people in Samaria that presented a problem. The Samaritans were not exactly Jews, but not exactly Samaritans either. They were a mix of everything. Back in Israel's history, when Israel's northern section collapsed under foreign empires, what they did to make sure they would never rise up and revolt was they basically intermarried everybody in the land with different nationalities that have been conquered. So basically you have this mixed race there in Samaria. As a result, the Jews who survived in the south in Jerusalem and a little bit in the north in Galilee, they continued on in their Jewish roots. But the Samaritans, well, they had a different Bible than the Jews. And they claimed that it was the law of Moses. They had a different temple than the Jews. And they claimed that that was the one where God's presence dwells. They were also a different race. And they also didn't like Jews. And Jews didn't like Samaritans. There is this one little moment in the Gospel of John where it says that um, John gives a commentary. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan at the well. And he says, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Like that little commentary is loaded with back history. Often, when Jewish pilgrims would come down from Galilee through Samaria and make their way toward Jerusalem to worship God at the major annual festivals, Samaritans who really, really, really didn't like the Jews, we'll call them zealots, maybe even jihadists, they would hide out along the route and attack and sometimes even kill Jews. This wasn't all the time, but there were enough instances where Samaritans would attack Jews and kill them that hostility was brewing between these two, very much so. And not to make the Samaritans the bad guys, the Jews gladly returned the favor when they had the chance to. 
So within the country of Jesus' time, it's a lot like modern times where there are people hating people and killing each other. This is Samaria. I want you to think of that person or that group of people or that entity that you just cannot stand. That's Samaria. Jesus does not take the route a lot of the Jews took, wrapping all the way around Samaria just to avoid them, even though it added days to their journey to get to Jerusalem. He does not wrap around Samaria. He goes through the heart of Samaria. And he does not do what I would do if I was forced to go through Samaria. All right, disciples, here's the line. Draws a line in the sand. Okay, everybody ready. This is the boundary. It's going to be risky. It's going to be dangerous. You don't know who's going to throw what at us. You don't know who's going to try to stop us. Don't let anybody ask for your passport. Let's just go. And so they line up. On your mark, get set. And they race through Samaria as fast as they can. Oh, we made it to Jerusalem. Oh, woo. Everyone make Peter. Oh, Peter, he's buying a lollipop from the vendor. No. But that, look, my thinking is, hey, let's get through Samaria as fast as possible. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus is doing this for 10 chapters. The birds are beautiful. The sun is shining. And the disciples are biting their fingernails and looking around. And then Jesus says, oh, hey, I've got a story to tell you. And they stop and listen to a story. They keep walking. Oh, hey, i got another story to tell you. He tells a story. And they keep inching their way. And Jesus is just in no hurry. He's just like, you know, I'm going to tell stories throughout this trip. And so from chapters 9 through 19, in this journey, you see Jesus telling stories. Ten of which are completely unique to Luke's gospel. What am I saying? I'm saying that Luke really wants to emphasize that Jesus told stories because he tells more stories in this gospel than the other gospels. And I want you to think about where he's telling these stories. Not in the comforts of Galilee, where everybody studies the scriptures and their synagogues and everybody goes there on the Sabbath day and worships and gets upset when people heal people on the Sabbath because that's not according to the rules. They're so firm in their faith up there. He's not doing this in Jerusalem where there's the temple and everybody who knows this is the true God and the true temple and we worship him just like everyone else here. He's not telling stories in the comforts of these religious zones. He's telling these stories in the hostile, uncomfortable territory of a people who have a different religion than he does. Well, wait, wait, wait. Is that not the time to start preaching fire and brimstone? Shouldn't he be doing altar calls as he's in Samaria, trying to convert all of these heathen Samaritans? No, he doesn't. I mean, maybe we think he should, but he doesn't. Jesus isn't doing altar calls. He's not preaching. He's not teaching from the scriptures. Why? They don't believe in his scriptures. So what does he do? He tells stories. Once upon a time... And they lived happily ever after. Jesus did that. If Jesus is a storyteller, what should we be? I want you to notice that these stories are rarely, very rarely, have anything to do with God or religion. They're about the common things Samaritans know about. Uh, The first story is in chapter 10, verse 25. 
10.25, well, it's, it's actually, it starts in 29, um, 10.29, but, uh, but he, the guy Jesus is talking to, he's a, he's a scholar of scriptures, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. A man, just an ordinary person, goes to Jericho and is beaten. That's you. That's me. We're the ordinary guy on an ordinary road doing your ordinary commute, and things go wrong. You get in a car accident. You're robbed. I don't know. It's just not your normal routine anymore. Now, by chance, 31, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So a priest and a Levite, these are the holy people. They should be the ones saying, oh my goodness, this man is hurt. Let's help him. But they don't. And now there's this thing in Israel where you follow priest, Levite, There's a third, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They knew what came after priest, Levite. The third category was Israelite. The priests, the Levites, and the Israelites, these are the holy people. So Jesus is setting them up for a punchline. See what he's doing? A priest comes along, a Levite comes along, and then everyone's like, all right, the Israelite's going to come along and save this man, and everyone here in Samaria is going to hear about it. But instead, Jesus turns the story, and says, then a Samaritan. What? It's supposed to be an Israelite. Yes, a Samaritan. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Of course, Jesus then gives a moment of reflection where he's calling us into the story. You have a part in here. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Now, to show you the hostility, the prejudice, the hatred towards Samaritans, look at this Jewish man's answer. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say Samaritan. I guess the one. To put the shocking value in perspective, This is like a story about you getting sidelined. You see Pastor Mike drive by. Hi, hope you're all right. What? You see Pastor Brandon do the same. Hi, looks like a bummer day for you. What? And you're sitting there praying that somebody would come save you. And then a car pulls up. Oh, my deliverance is here. And out of the driver's seat, is a person who has a turban wrapped around his head. He's a Muslim. Do you, do you see the gravity of what Jesus is doing with the story? He's telling them, hey, as we walk through Samaria, I need you guys to understand something. Stop hating each other. Because the person you despise could end up being the person you need most. 
Well, another parable is in 11 verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus is asking, hey, what kind of a friend would say that to you? Like, uh, sorry, I'm just in bed, I'm not helping you. She, in this culture, it wouldn't happen. You were obligated to help people who came to your house for hospitality. Your friend obviously would help you. But Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, so far, we have a story about a Samaritan and a beat-up man. We have a story about a neighbor needing bread, knocking on a door. We have a story in chapter 12 about... Uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, verse 6, about manure. That's real spiritual. And he told this parable, 13.6, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? It's a waste of space. How many people do you think that about? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. By the way, if you're a note taker, verse 8, Sir, let it alone. That phrase is the same phrase that Jesus utters when he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's the same Greek that constructs those phrases. <laughs> What's he saying? Forgive the, forgive the tree for not bearing fruit on your time. Fill it with manure. But see, see, look, look what Jesus is doing. Now we're talking about manure. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing churchy. There's nothing scriptury about this. Also, notice that parables are not necessarily factual. He's not like, go, go, go fact check me on the fact that this really happened to some tree three years ago about this guy wanting to cut it down or, or he doesn't even have a name for the guy who was robbed on the Good Samaritan. Um, nobody's name. These are just stories, but they're telling us something true. They're not factual, but they're true. Uh, let's look at another one just as an example. Uh, you, you, I think you're getting the point though that there's not a lot of God in these stories, at least mentioned by name. Um, in a, well, here, let's do chapter 15, the famous one. 1511. And he said, there was a young, there was a man who had two sons. Pause. A Jew would be thinking of what stories at this point? A man had two sons. Cain and Abel. Isaac and Jacob. Es- no, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Esau and Jacob. I mean, there, there's a plethora of a man had two sons. 
So, all right, uh, we're, we're tracking with you. But, oh, twist is a different story. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, which, of course, for a Jew would have been one of the lowest animals you could feed. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he said, the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf, the one we've been saving for celebration, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. There's a full-on party in which people are here and celebrating And then this, now, 25, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Okay, how many of you have ever put on a party like this? Music, dancing, killing the fatted calf, preparing the feast. You don't do this in a couple of hours. This takes all day. The older son's in the field, he hears all this. In 26, he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. This son hasn't even heard that a party was being, being planned. He just hears that it's happening. What? How come I don't know about this? 27, he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fat and calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entered and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate my friends. But when your son came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. Don't see the name God. Don't see the name, the word sin. Don't see the word forgiveness. Don't see the word believe in God to forgive you of your sins. I'm not saying that means these things don't matter. I'm saying that story can portray those truths without ever naming them. And this Jesus does while he's with hostile, unbelieving crowds. When he's between religious places, between Sundays, going through the Samaria of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. When you and I are engaging with a lot of people who don't buy what we believe. 
And how many of you have tried to talk to them and kind of string together phrases you've heard in sermons or Bible verses or all this Christianese? It's like we're trying to talk to them in our language. And they're like, I'm a, I'm a Samaritan. I don't understand you. But story? See, what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking Samaritan. And he's showing us that, yes, there's a father who forgives and receives those who run away. But he's also showing you and I that not all who are sinning are lost. Some are in the church who are lost. The older brother who are, eh, Samaritans, I don't do, I don't do Samaritans. This older brother at the end of the story is lost, not the younger son. So Jesus wants us to learn to speak Samaritan. (laughs) How are we doing with that? One story only has um, religious setting. And it's in chapter 18, verse 9. It's where you see the Pharisee and the tax collector coming to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee prays, God, I think you're not like other people. I'm such a great person. I fast twice a week. Um, but the tax collector, who's considered a sinner in society, he doesn't even lift his eyes up to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy that God heard. Uh, that's the one time that we see religious themes in his stories in this episode where they're going through Samaria to Jerusalem. I mean, very little. So, so what Jesus is doing is he's speaking Samaritan. He's using story. Story is a universal language because it uses the same images to convey truths that are deeper than words and definitions. I uh, remember asking you guys to pray for me. What, uh, what was it, like a month ago? Maybe a month and a half ago? We had exchange students with Lake Road Christian School from Beijing who don't know very much English. And they were in this room every day. And I I was their Bible teacher. And I was tasked with sharing with them the gospel. How do you do that? How do you do that with people who have never heard the gospel? They don't know the words we use. They don't know Jesus. You can't say, Jesus is your Savior. They don't know, what, what am I being saved from? I don't understand your Christian talk. And not only do they not understand the Christian language, they don't understand English as well as you would hope. What do you do? You tell stories. You tell stories that we can all see and get the point of through picture. That's what Jesus does. So um, one of them, I actually just acted out this, uh, the prodigal son story, just to show them this is what God is like. I may not be able to define that for you. We may not understand the same words. In fact, the word I think means this. You probably think it means that. So, but I can show you through story. Speaking Samaritan. What we call what Jesus is doing here, we call these parables. Parables. They're basically stories, short stories, very, very short stories with a punchline. Parables are basically these little, little, little stories where you see a sequence of events, some details, and then all of a sudden, boom, it punches you in the face. You're like, I didn't see that coming. That's what the parables were. They kind of lead you along. Oh, I know this is, oh, I did not see that Samaritan coming, right? 
The idea was to shock you into consciousness to the truth that we slumber to throughout life. We miss truths in the world because we kind of just move through the world just kind of in our own heads. And the parable is meant to awaken us to that which we're neglecting and ignoring. The parable is perfect because for people like the Samaritans who may not receive the words of Jesus, you're a Jew, why are we going to listen to you? You have a different Bible, you have a different temple, you have a different God, a different religion, you're a different race, you have a different culture, different likes, you guys watch different movies, you have different, all different things. If Jesus just started teaching them, they would have said, we're not listening to you, buddy. They have guards up, right? They are defensive. They have objections to his message. But if you can tell them a story, like, oh, what happened to the man's son? I don't know what's going to happen next. The truth is seeping into them. And, and one, the way one person describes parables is it's like a time bomb. You don't know what it's going to do. You just listen to it, you ingest it, and somewhere later in your life, it makes sense. It goes off. I like to define the parables as secular stories with a spiritual punchline. Secular stories. Everyone can get along with that. It's a story about a princess. It's a story about a man. It's a story about a country. It's a story about a person who wants a girl. It's a story about a person who's going to climb a mountain. All just these basic stories. And the unbeliever can say, yeah, I can go with that. But if you tell the story well, like Jesus does, you can put truth all over the place and it will grow within. Now, we don't do this very well in the West. We like intellectual stuff. I want you guys, most pastors do, this is the goal. We want you to leave church with like, what did you learn tonight? Well, I learned dot, dot, dot. I feel successful. You heard, you understood, you took it home with you. It's really hard to throw and sprinkle truth gradually and let the lights be turned on slowly because you can't measure that. You can't quantify that. I can't count up how many people came forward at an altar call the way Jesus is doing it with story. So we neglect it because we want results. We want to know that it's working, right? We want fact, and we want to be able to know it worked. We, we know for a fact that it worked because we can count this up. We're not patient like Jesus is. He didn't go through Samaria trying to save everybody. He went through Samaria hoping they'll be saved because he left truth that will linger in their soul and one day give birth to understanding. Man, how do we do that? How do we speak Samaritan? How do we learn to reach people in a way that is not teaching and preaching? It's a great, fantastic question. I have a couple of insights in this gospel. First, uh, well, there's three, and I'm, I'm using, what, where I'm getting this is from the number of times these themes come up, and they're the most in Luke of all the other gospels. So I thought, you know, you got to go with those. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the best story birther. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the one who births stories within us. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 17 times in Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, and of course makes a ton of appearances in the book of Acts, which is his part two writing. 
So Luke is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because we see that Mary in the beginning of the Gospels, is impregnated, it says, by the Holy Spirit. So this whole story about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, this whole story about Jesus is birthed, it's begun by the Holy Spirit. And that is what drives it. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, the entire Bible is birthed by the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form, and it was void, it was empty, and darkness hovered over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved or vibrated over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God? Yes. God's Spirit births creation. God's Spirit births the new creator, Jesus, into the world. God's Spirit will birth the story of truth in us. If we are willing to let the Spirit shake our preconceived notions about the world and just give us that spiritual punchline in the things that we see, learning to see life and to see situations and to see people through the lens of the Holy Spirit as we let him fill us. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 17 times in Luke, as I said. Just as an example, if you want to see, it's, it's very heavy early on even, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, we see an angel telling uh, Zechariah, the dad of John the Baptist, this about his son to come. <laughs> A lot of backstory there. And he shall not drink wine or strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 35, the angel's talking to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we have in chapter 2, verse 24, Five. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon, and this was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In chapter 3, verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 4, verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So we're just through the first four chapters, and we've already seen half a dozen references to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only launches the gospel, not only launches creation, not only launches the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is what will drive us to find ways to tell truth in a way that will reach the people next to us. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit within me, and God wants to fill them with his Holy Spirit. The spirit who's in me that wants to fill this person will tell me how to get there. I simply have to go where the spirit goes. I cannot say, yeah, yeah, but Holy Spirit, Billy Graham did it like this. 
Greg Laurie did it like that. Or my pastor gave me these four laws. No, no, don't go for the assembly instructions. Nobody picks up assembly instructions and says, well, now that I got the night off, let me read about this bookshelf. That's interesting. Nobody does. Maybe one of you do that, but that's why you're sitting alone. Just kidding. <laughs> um, nobody does that. Nobody does that. We read things that make tell us something, that tell us truth. Second, so the Holy Spirit, second, prayer. Jesus is seen praying more times in Luke's gospel than any other gospel. He is seen praying in action ten times. Anyway, it's easy to go through and count up. It says, and Jesus was praying, and Jesus was praying, and after he prayed, and he went to pray ten times. It's a, it's a significant part to Jesus' life. What I've found is I begin to see life in context through prayer. I can just be going around and wanting to rattle off information and just teach people all this stuff and preach them to heaven and, you know, all this, like, ways of going about things. But when I pray, all of that stuff has to be sifted out. And I just, with God, have to realize, you know what? Everything around me is just a setting. And God has put me here to do something. And I get to listen to the story that God has been crafting in my own life. The Holy Spirit, prayer, and third, the table or food. Luke has Jesus eating food more than any other gospel. The Holy Spirit will give us stories. Prayer will help us to learn what it is and how to say it and to see it. The table Food becomes the theater. Why does Jesus eat so much, especially in Luke's gospel? He eats because that is where common human connection can happen. And that's where we just, we naturally tell stories at the table. We talk about an experience we went through, something funny. We talk about our week or our day. We whine about this. We gloat about that. The table is full of eating and story. And Jesus seeks those places where he can meet with people in an unguarded, common way and let the story slip in. Chapter 14 is the biggest um, story, uh, I mean, table section that you see. Um, He actually gives three stories at that table setting. Um, Jesus used food and the table quite a lot. So these are just starting places because there's a thing about story. There's no right way to tell to tell stories with Jesus. You ever notice like there's no like people have guidelines for how a story should work, but there's no rule like this is the only way to tell a story. There's no rule. A story is just a series of events with a point. And so there's a lot of freedom here to figure out how do I tell stories with Jesus in this world? How do I learn to speak Samaritan? So I want to give us this practical step that we can use starting tonight. Jesus is talking in parables. Now, you know what parable means? Parabole. That's, that's the Greek, right? That's where we get parable. Para means to come alongside, like parallel. Bole means to throw. 
So a parable is something that's thrown alongside, okay? Now, we usually use the word parable as a noun. He told a parable. I'm going to ask us to use parable as a verb. What do I mean? Go parable this week. Go parable. Go throw alongside. Or this. Go throw what you read, what you watch, or your own life. Those stories, what you read, watch, your own life. Go throw those stories alongside the story. This is how we begin to learn to storytell with Jesus. If we can throw the stories we read, watch, and live, and throw them alongside the story of Scripture, you will begin to see it differently. You'll begin, wow, Beauty and the Beast may have an element of truth there that fits with the Bible. Narnia has a lot of truth. Lord of the Rings has a lot of truth. Pocahontas has a lot of truth. Whatever you're watching, you can learn to see how does this story share Jesus? Because I guarantee more people in your life know that story than they know the Bible. That's how to speak Samaritan. Go throw that story alongside the Jesus story and see where it matches and where you can see it happening. Some of you read fiction. Good job. Go throw that story alongside this story. Many of us don't. If I'm even going to read, it's going to, it's got to be real. Totally get, I was totally said that before. Um, in fact, I went as far as to say, if I'm ever going to spend time reading, it's going to be the Bible. <laughs> What's neat though is that I begin to see the Bible in a richer way when I began to read fiction and began to throw those stories alongside the story. And now I can see, oh, the Bible is a story, and this is how it's working here, because I understand that stories work like this. The other thing that's really good about reading fiction is it gives you empathy for people. You get to experience life from another person's point of view that you'll never experience. And you begin to learn what it feels like to go through that, or what a person is, what a person that's gone through this, what it feels like, because you go through that with them. You get experience through fiction. There is a lot of truth in that factless story if we can read it and throw it alongside the story of Jesus. You can find something there that can reach the common Samaritan. And of course, your own life. Every person in here is loaded with stories. That's what your life is. Experience, experience, experience. Where are they? What are they? And how do you share them? Have you ever thrown your own life alongside the life of Jesus and looked for those things that speak of his work and of his faithfulness and of his love? Have you done, have you taken the time to see those so that you can then throw that story alongside someone else's life? This is how we can share Jesus in an unguarded way with people. Oh, no, no, no. I know you Christians. Don't go there with me. We've all heard that. But who can shut down a well-told story? No one can. 
I, I'm in here every Friday, often um, the one with the mic, sometimes not, but talking to high schoolers. You start with once upon a time. Then what? How is he going to resolve it? Like It reaches people that may not be... Now, I know us here, like most of you guys are here because you know we're going to open the Bible. Like, yes, that's why I come here. We're going to open the Bible and we're going to look at it. Yeah, well, newsflash, you're not normal. (laughs) That's great. And I love teaching the Bible. I think we need it. I'm not asking us to stop teaching scripture. I'm not asking us to stop teaching and preaching altogether. I'm asking us to consider when you are in your Samaritan country, how are you communicating? Because there are ways, without being an evangelist, there are ways to bring people into the story of Jesus without saying the name Jesus. Now, there will be a time when you should say the name Jesus, but you need to know when that time is, not choose it for yourself. Well, it needs to be now. No, just let the Holy Spirit bring that up. You learn to tell stories. Just connect common life. And I'm, I'm telling you, if we would practice, to, if we would start paraboling everything we watch and listen to and read, if we would start throwing this story and that story alongside the story of Jesus, you will begin to be amazed by the connections you'll start to see. So some, sometimes we get the attitude of like, I don't do movies. It's all Hollywood rubbish. Yeah, there is a lot of that there. But you're cutting yourself off from a main medium that most people understand. And if you care about your neighbor... I'm encouraging you to start caring about the stories around you. Go ahead and enjoy a story every now and then and throw it alongside the Jesus story. You may decide it has no connection, but what you'll see is it told me how not to live. That's a great lesson. Um, And go ahead and read fiction every now and then if you like to read. Some people just don't read. That's fine. You know, you're more the TV movie person. That's great. Just get stories into you. And... um, we can, we can see what might start to happen with people. So I know a little bit of a different message than we're used to, um, but I feel like if it was important to Jesus, it needs to be important to us. So I took a night to ask you guys to challenge yourselves in the area of being storytellers.